hear myself now. Good. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Always like hearing your voices. If you will turn and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, um, I'm not the greatest uh, person at creating introductions. Uh, if you've been with me for very long, I struggle at making good ones. So we're just going to get right into the text this morning. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And I believe, as the screen says, you will find that passage on page 812 in those blue pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would invite you to take that Bible. Um, we want you to know it, want you to read it, because as Joel has prayed and as we uh, sing and, and think here, uh, we believe that God's Word is the source of all truth. And along with that, we want you to know uh, the person that it's pointing to in Jesus Christ. And we're going to be talking about him a little bit as well. So let's go ahead and read together again, starting on verse 24. Uh, through the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 7. Read along with me. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. In our passage this morning, Jesus minces no words at all for us. There is a decision for everyone, and particularly that decision is whether or not you will listen to and obey Jesus and obey him as the king of your life. And according to Jesus, the stakes of this decision, as I just read in the parable, could not be any higher. Listen and obey King Jesus and you will live. Listen and do nothing and you will fall. Now, because it does create this dichotomy, and if you assume that you can simply check out now, because you fall in one category and you know you're going to be okay because you, you've been founded upon the rock and you believe that maybe this sermon only applies to those that maybe haven't done that yet. I want you to know that this sermon is actually for you as well. Jesus, even in this parable, is an equal opportunity offender. And he will offend anybody who hears this parable. And it's not just those that need to repent and come to faith in Jesus that need to hear it this morning. The reality is, and this might make us a little uncomfortable, the reality is that many of us are here this morning who profess that we follow Jesus and that we are Christians. But if we actually took stock of our lives, we would find that there's actually not much different about us on the outside. Particularly, maybe we will call ourselves Christians, but we only spend an hour or two uh, on a Sunday uh, going to church. But everything else, not very different. This group that I'm talking about here is often called a nominal Christian, or a Christian in name only. And I think a magazine editor who he conducts surveys about uh, who belongs in what, in what religious group, he describes a nominal Christian in this way. It's somebody that's being born into a given family or belonging to a certain cultural or religious context, or having gone through some kind of Christian initiation process that has little, if any, impact on their daily lives. And there's several examples of this. Um, you have no desire for God. You have no desire to be in his word, to get to know him, to love him. 
You have no desire for uh, fellowshipping with God's people and serving God's people. You have really just an obligation to be at church, maybe. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you were just hoping to be here and to remain anonymous. Well, that might be you as a nominal Christian. Or maybe the opposite is true, where many of us, we, we busy ourselves doing the Christian things and participating in the Christian activities, but outside of doing all the Christian things that we can do, there's really no depth of actually knowing and loving and seeking Jesus. We don't desire to know what He's done for us in His life, death, and resurrection. There's no love or wellspring of joy that comes from knowing that you are a rebel against Christ that has been saved. Instead, you go through the motions week after week, giving, doing, participating in all the Christian things. Jesus actually talks about this group of Christians in the previous verses right before the section that we're in this morning. He says in verses 21 through 23, if you want to peek your eyes up there a little bit, he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, whether you are a nominal Christian that I described above a busybody pretending to be a Christian that Jesus talked about there, a Christian that's growing, or maybe you're just here simply and you know for sure you're not a Christian at all. For all of us this morning, Jesus is placing before us a decision as he wraps up this Sermon on the Mount. And the decision comes from a question. And that question is before all of us. And this morning, that question is, will you listen to and obey Jesus? Will you listen to and obey Jesus? That question will serve as kind of the main idea of our sermon this morning. And what we're going to do to hopefully answer that question, will you listen to and obey Jesus, is actually ask four, excuse me, three different questions in light of that question. So we're going to answer a question with three different questions. Hopefully we don't get too confused to that. But the main question, the main thing that we want to seek out in light of this parable is will you listen to and will you obey Jesus? And we're going to ask three questions in light of that. What does this parable teach How did people respond? And what does this mean for us? And specifically, whenever I'm asking, what does this mean for us? We're going to be talking about those four kind of broad categories that I just talked about earlier. We're going to be talking about what does it mean for the nominal Christian, the busybody, the growing Christian, and the non-Christian. We're going to figure out, after we find the answer of what that question is, of will you listen to and obey Jesus, we're going to talk about each group at the end of the sermon. But let's start first with that first question. What does this parable teach? What does this parable teach? And will it answer the question, will you listen to and obey Jesus? This parable is actually the very first parable that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And interestingly, Matthew, the author of this Gospel, forms his account around five distinct discourses, or a fancy word of saying teaching sections within his book. And in four of those five discourses, they end or have some sort of judgment parable or tone at each of them. If you're interested in those different sections, I actually just want to run through those really quickly of what these discourses are. And these sections are as follows. Matthew 5 through 7, probably all of us know this one. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and obviously as we've read, it ends with the parable of the two builders. 
In Matthew 10, the second major teaching section of Matthew, it's Jesus sending out the 12, and it's actually the only discourse that doesn't have a parable within it. And then there's Matthew 13, and as we all know, in Matthew chapter 13, all that chapter is is a litany of parables about what the kingdom is like. And then eventually what ends up happening after he talks about all of these different kind of parables about what the kingdom is like, Jesus ends up getting rejected out of Nazareth. His own people say, "Ah, we don't want this. In Matthew 18, uh, it's talking about how Christ's church, as he establishes that kingdom here on earth, what that's going to look like, how that church lives. And then that section in Matthew chapter 18 actually ends with the parable of the unforgiving servant which is actually also, again, a judgment type of parable. And then finally, in Matthew 23 through 25, it's known as this Olivet Discourse, or a fancy way of saying his teaching on the Mount of Olives. And that section ends with the parable of the talents. And specifically, it ends with Jesus' words about the judgment that is to come when he returns again. So all throughout the book of Matthew, all throughout are these parables and these judgment tones that are just popping up each time that he's going in a major teaching section. And as we begin to seek and understand this parable, it's helpful to know that, quite simply, a parable, because we need to know what that is, according to a New Testament scholar, is this. It's an expanded analogy used to convince and persuade. A parable is simply an expanded analogy used to convince and persuade. So frequently, we will see Jesus use this rhetorical tool of parable to not just simply convince his hearers of what he's been teaching, but to also spur the hearer into action. All of the parables that he lists are meant to bring about action from the hearer. What we have here in this parable is an analogy by way of house building in particular for his hearers to hopefully obey everything that he's been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, naturally, the question is, because it's like, hey, Pastor Tanner, you've just brought us to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. How are we supposed to do anything in light of what he says here? So what has Jesus been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Glad you asked. Well, all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5, and if you want to turn over a couple of pages, you might want to do that. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. But basically, from Matthew chapter 5 and all the way to our parable at the end of chapter 7, it concludes a section, as I stated, it's this major teaching of Jesus. And Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, according to uh, Jonathan Pennington, a a New Testament scholar, he describes this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as wisdom from God. Jesus is inviting hearers of this sermon through faith to reorient their values, visions, and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. This isn't law, but gospel. Jesus is inviting all his hearers of this sermon into life, into God's kingdom, both now and in the future age. Basically, what Jesus is expounding upon here is grace. He is building out what his kingdom will look like as it is filled with his mercy, with his righteousness, and with his grace. In my own words, in many ways, Jesus is giving a picture of what it means to follow the Old Testament law. Not merely by some rote external action or motion, but instead he's saying, I'm inviting you to follow the law with a heart that has been so transformed by the grace of God that it just simply kind of oozes out of that person. 
as people recognize who they are in light of God and their need for Him, and their heart gets transformed in light of that, this righteousness that is seen in the Sermon on the Mount comes out of them. It's an incredible sermon, and if I was a little bit more bold, we would just read through the whole thing. But we're not going to do that this morning for the sake of your time, and I'm sure like you, I got really full at breakfast as well, and so uh, to keep you from sleeping, uh, we're not going to do that this morning. But what we're going to do, I'm going to do a very, very, very quick flyover of the sermon. So you didn't turn to Matthew chapter 5 for no reason. So hold on uh, to your seatbelts here. We're going to run through what has Christ been teaching? What has Jesus been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? So overall, the summary statement of the Sermon on the Mount could be citizens of God's kingdom will reflect as citizens everything of this kingdom thought, attitude, speech, and deed. They would reflect what God would do in thought, attitude, speech, and deed. Jesus has been teaching in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, that kingdom citizens are blessed and fortunate, not because of their particular plight, but rather in the heart, because it has been changed, because they want to follow this king of this kingdom. In Matthew 13 through 48, because kingdom citizens have a changed heart, there's necessarily changed outward actions as well that result in both personal righteousness and a righteousness that actually blesses other people as well. In Matthew 6, 1 through 18, kingdom citizens practice righteousness to please God and God alone. They don't practice this righteousness to please man. They do it because they are so devoted to God. True citizens of the kingdom are not hypocrites, is basically a summary section of 6, 1 through 18. In 6, 19 through 34, Jesus teaches that kingdom citizens are righteous with regard with how they deal with money and how they trust God. They're going to show a level of right character and right heart and right action in light of them trusting God with all of those different arenas of their life. And then as we get into chapter 7, in verses 1 through 14, kingdom citizens do not judge others without first analyzing and judging themselves in light of their righteousness before God. They are to seek the Lord in prayer and they're to pursue more kingdom righteousness. The righteousness that they've been given cultivates more righteousness. And then in 7, 15 through 23, Jesus teaches that kingdom citizens obey his words and they're known by the Lord and they place their hope in him. And not to mention as well, they bear fruit. And that brings us to our section again this morning. After all of that, Jesus again says, beginning in verse 24, everyone then or therefore everyone who hears these words of mine, all the words of the Sermon on the Mount and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. If you notice, there's actually only about four different differences between the two builders within this analogy and the two kind of people that he's ultimately comparing within this parable. The first and primary difference, and honestly the most concerning difference between the two types of people is doing. One person hears the instructions of Jesus and obeys them. He seeks to follow them. And the other just hears the instructions of Jesus and disregards them and does not do them. 
The second major difference that we see in the parable between the two people that Jesus is comparing is how they are characterized by Jesus. The person who then hears and then does is characterized as a wise person. They are wise because of their action, if you will. Where the other one who only hears is considered foolish. The third difference is the one builder, the person who listens and does, what ends up happening to him. He withstands the flood. The wind and the rain and the flood, it doesn't make his house fall. While the other builder, the person who only listens and does not do anything, their structure falls. And it's characterized, if you notice, by a great fall. It's not just a fall, but a great fall. And then fourth and finally, the major difference is uh, the builders are characterized by the foundation upon which they build their houses. So then the one who hears and does Jesus' words, they're characterized by building their house upon the rock. And the person that hears Jesus' words and does not do them, they build their house upon sand. And it's obviously a shifting sand in this analogy. It's clear from this parable that Jesus is creating a, a dichotomy, a clear division between those who listen to him and obey him and those who listen to him only. And I believe if I, if I were to take a straw poll and make you all raise your hands, which I'm not going to, but if I were to say, hey, if you were going to build your house, how many of you would build it on a rock? Hopefully, Lord willing, 100% of you would raise your hands and say, of course, we want to build our house on the rock. We don't want to build a house that's not going to withstand the flood and the rains. We don't want to be characterized as the foolish person who builds our house on sand. So how do we do that? How do we build our house upon the rock? Well, without hopefully belaboring the point too much, and you see it here, Jesus makes clear that it is those who not just only hear and listen to his words, but also do them as well. They obey everything that he just taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the people that will withstand the rain, the floods, and the winds. Their house will stand strong. And this language that Jesus is using here about the flood, about rain, about wind, about destruction, it all connotates in the language of that day as language of judgment. While some would suggest that the storm that Jesus is talking about here is a storm of life, and and, and I will say this, I think there is some truth to those that go through the storms of this life and are founded upon Jesus' teaching and obeying them, they, they will withstand those storms of life. I think there is something greater here that Jesus is teaching. He's not merely teaching about what do I do when I go through trials. There's a greater judgment, a greater analogy that he's getting at. And I think he's talking about an, view, an eventual future salvation or judgment that's going to come. Now, if that scares you as a hearer, you need to know that this language of judgment, it's not an unusual theme present within the Bible or really in Jesus' teachings. As I just said in the book of Matthew, five different times throughout these discourses, he is teaching on judgment that is to come in light of different situations. And hopefully, as you all have seen and, and well know, likely, as we've traversed through the book of 1 Samuel, there is so much judgment in light of what we've been reading through. Maybe some of you are reading through your Bible reading plan and are in the book of Deuteronomy or in the prophets. You know that there's a theme of, if you do this, you will live. Or there's a theme of, because you have not done this, there's now impending consequence in light of that. I, I would suggest that in this sermon, Jesus is actually 
laying out the Old Testament law, specifically in the Ten Commandments, in a very, very fresh way for his hearers to understand that they need to be obedient to those commands. Not to mention, in the original language, and and at least in the Greek, when Jesus says that those persons who either hear or do not hear him will be like, and so on and so forth, this is all connotating a future tense. Jesus is looking forward to an eventual day, if you will, where all of this that he's talking about within this parable is going to come true. And it's meaning that Jesus was talking about a future day where that storm or this judgment will come to determine whether or not people listen to him or not. So we need to have our ears up because we are still, I think, waiting for that future storm, if you will, that future judgment. And so very simply, and once again, one of the ways that we are not washed away by the floods or the winds and the rains of judgment is by listening and obeying Jesus. We find our salvation, friends, this morning in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we can place our hope in. We need to trust Him. We need to lean on the grace of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do. But it seems to be clear here that while Jesus believes all of that, that there's an action. There is salvation that is accompanied by outward repentance. Repentance that is visibly seen in a turning from sin and in obedience to Jesus as King. As we've talked through in the book of 1 Samuel, we know when we see the people of God trusting in the Lord. They turn from their sin, they turn from their wicked ways, and they pursue righteousness because they have been saved by God, because they have been known and founded by God. And the same is true for us this morning as well as we hear Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. According to Jesus in this parable, mere affirmation in his words, mental assent, agreement only in his words, it's not enough. Yes, you are made righteous and justified by grace alone in Christ alone, as Paul argues. But Jesus is saying here that that affirmation in his words ought to be accompanied by following him as the king of your life. There's an outward obedience as a result of being saved. There's an outward obedience as a result of placing Jesus as the king of your life. Paul affirms this faith that results in doing in Galatians 5, 5 through 6. Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So he's saying you can't earn your salvation by doing anything. But only faith, trusting in God, working through love, shows that you have been made righteous. Paul also states in Titus 3, 4 through 8, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is the verse here that I want you to catch. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There's an understanding when you have been founded upon the rock, when you have been justified by Christ in your salvation, that you then will follow King Jesus in your action. 
You will be repentant. You will show outward, external righteousness. That doesn't mean it comes easily. It doesn't mean that there aren't struggles along the way. But there is a clear pattern, a clear walk that is different than before. Perhaps the clearest instruction on this idea of faith outworking itself in obedience is found in the book of James. And Joel actually prayed this this morning. He, James says, and this is, again, this is James, the uh, half-brother of Jesus Christ, he says, uh, knowing his brother's words, he says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and, and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And that's really what we see here, is it not, in this parable? The one who hears and obeys Jesus' words, he will be the hearer who is blessed in his doing. I think this is the bottom line of what this parable teaches. Listen to and obey Jesus and live. Listen to and obey Jesus and live. And if you don't, there's a judgment that's to come. But I don't know if you wondered this. I I thought about this as I was studying this text. How can Jesus make such a claim about himself? Why can he say, listen to my words and live? How can he make such a claim? And I actually think we find the answer in verses 28 and 29. So read along with me there. Matthew 7, 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had, as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We're going to try to seek to answer the question, which is, pretty visible. How did people respond? But we're going to be talking about a greater response. I think that's needed. But how did people respond in light of all of these teachings? As I just read, people were astonished. But I don't know if you noticed, their, their astonishment is, is twofold. The sermon he delivered, it, it was incredible. It was amazing. But it was his authority that he taught with that it astonished them. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was not formally trained as a scribe or as a Pharisee of that day. He wasn't a professional theologian. He was a carpenter from backwoods Nazareth. To use a phrase from my childhood, as he was teaching, his teaching was out of this world. It was very different compared to the man that they thought would be teaching. Jesus was not some mere teacher, though, recapitulating or rehearsing the law. But he was actually acting like an Old Testament prophet or acting as a mouthpiece of God as he was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think what Matthew is trying to help his readers see here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is the final prophet that Moses and other prophets were pointing to. The greatest words out of the greatest man came from Jesus. Well, why is that? Well, Moses prophesied about Jesus in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, Moses, They are right in what they have spoken. I, being God, will raise up for them a 
a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This idea of Jesus being a prophet or the mouthpiece of God is understood, I believe, by the rest of the New Testament, and particularly in Acts chapter 3, as Peter teaches about Jesus and, and says, hey, this is that prophet that you all were longing for, the ones that you've been hardening your heart against. Jesus was the prophet that you were meant to listen to. But Jesus, at least by the way the crowds respond, he's not like a normal prophet. Now, mind you, we've seen in, in the book of 1 Samuel, there was a great repentance that happened with Samuel as he preached, turning back to God. But there's something a little bit different here that we don't get with some of the Old Testament prophets. This astonishment, I believe, is really, really unusual. And one of the reasons is, I think Jesus seems to go a little further and he extends his authority more than just the prophets of the Old Testament. So, for example, if you were to take a look at the language of the Old Testament prophets, especially like in the minor prophets, they would begin a judgment or a phrase and they'd say, thus says the Lord, so on and so forth, right? Not me saying this, but thus says the Lord denoting they were speaking on behalf of God. But Jesus, if you read through Matthew 5 through 7, in this sermon, he does not say that at all. He never says, thus says the Lord. Instead, he says things like, you've heard it said X, Y, or Z, but I say to you X, Y, or Z. And we see this extended authority in our text this morning when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, or, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Jesus places before them a weighty matter before them. Somebody speaking on their own authority, especially within the Jewish context, would have been heretical, even blasphemous to a certain extent. But Jesus doesn't seem to care about that. He places the authority of his words on himself. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is equating the authority of his words and what he preached on the Sermon on the Mount as the same as God's word. It's as if Jesus is saying, obey my words because I am God. I am God in the flesh. One pastor described Jesus' authority here in these verses in this way. In their particular culture, being the Jewish culture, that meant Jesus quoted nobody. He footnoted nothing. He didn't say he had gotten this truth from some eminent rabbi. He didn't say that this was an exposition of some commentary written by some respected person of another time. He just spoke with authority. And if I could add, he spoke like God because he was God in the flesh. The response of the people then and the response of the people now should be astonishment. We should hear these claims of Jesus saying, if you follow these words and obey them, you'll live. We should have astonishment in the same way. But I believe there's a greater response that is needed in light of these words. Our response should be faith in those words. We should have faith in the person speaking those words. Yes, this message, this Sermon on the Mount, it's extraordinary. But it's made all the more amazing because of who is talking. This is God who took on flesh that is carrying out, saying this is how to be righteous. You believe my words, you do them. This is why Jesus can call for such an action 
in light of his words. Obey me and live. Jesus' authority is not like some kind of politician that you can agree or disagree with. There's plenty of people that say, I ought to do one thing, but I don't want to do that thing, right? Jesus' authority and his words, they're not like that. He's offering to you and to all of us here this morning to not just place faith in his words, but in himself. Place your faith in obedience, not in his teaching, but in himself as the God who humbled himself. The one who flung all the stars into the world, the one that put the sun into motion, the one that decrees where that north wind that makes it so cold here can go. Jesus is that very same God. And he's the one that deserves all of your devotion and all of your admiration and all of your obedience. Place your faith in him. Why? Because he was obedient. He was obedient to the point of death on a cross on your behalf because he loved you. Friend, if you've not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, as the authority of your life, I would encourage you to do that today. If you have questions what that might look like, please come and find me. I'll be out in the back at the end of the service today. I'd love to talk to you about that. But today is the day that you need to know and need to respond to Jesus' authoritative teaching and especially to his own mouth because he is God. So all of this this morning have now heard Jesus through this sermon, but I think it would actually be poor form for us not to consider how we could also do, right? We would be falling into the same trap as the person who built their house on sand. So let's seek to answer the final question. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And specifically, what is this parable and its teachings to obey King Jesus and live and to respond with faith? What does it mean for the nominal Christian, the busybody, the growing Christian, and the non-Christian? So what does it mean for the nominal Christian first? Certainly, I, I think for all groups that I've listed, the common instruction could likely be, hey, have faith in Jesus and be obedient to him. It's very simple. I think all of us can take, take home that action today. Have faith in Jesus and be obedient to him. But I believe each group has a special application in light of the parable. Each one has a particular struggle that this world will land on him or her with. So first, for the nominal Christian or Christian in name only, yes, I want to invite you into a real and genuine faith in Jesus that outworks itself in obedience. Friend, Jesus wants more from you than a simple routine of going to church every once in a while or once or twice on a Sunday. He wants more for you than simply knowing John 3.16, that whoever believes in him would not perish. He wants you, friend, to have a real friendship and fellowship that comes from belonging to a body of believers. But more than that, I wonder if you, nominal Christian, have considered what Jesus is trying to save you from. What is Jesus warning you from in this parable? I think Jesus is calling on you and saying, you, friend, are like the foolish person. The person who has built their house on an unsure foundation of sand. And that sand will be swept away whenever the storm of judgment comes. Friend, if you're a nominal Christian this morning, Jesus is trying to save you from yourself. And this parable is indeed here because he loves you enough to save you from himself and to be the propitiation of your own sin of trusting in yourself. Perhaps many of us in here need the wake-up call of this parable to finally see that perhaps you don't have actual, genuine, or tangible faith in Jesus. Jesus. 
but rather you've placed your hope of being saved from the storm of judgment, from the tradition of, of just going to church once or twice in a year, or because you, you did a baptism a long time ago, but it didn't mean anything. Friend, Jesus is inviting you today to a faith that means something. He wants you to have a faith that is vibrant, that's living, that's an overflow of thankfulness, of realizing that God has saved you from yourself. He saved you from the sand of your own trust and your own obedience and your own tradition. He wants you to build your life upon the rock of real faith, of real faith that changes from the inside out. This is an exciting faith that he invites you to, and I pray that you would respond in light of that. What does this mean for the busybody, though? If you belong in this group, you're likely the person who seems to be on the go all the time for Jesus. But your relationship with Jesus is it's pretty shallow, or perhaps non-existent. Sure, you may do all the things that look like bearing fruit, like serving in the soup kitchen, or donating your money to the right organizations, getting really angry about the right political things. But none of it seems to be particularly impactful spiritually to those that you're serving. Busybody friend, what Jesus invites you to this morning is a deep love for him. A deep love for him. I'm afraid for so many of us, we are probably a lot like Martha, the sister of Lazarus and Mary. I don't know if you recall, but at one point in time in the gospel account, she busied herself when Jesus was visiting her and her family. And she was distracted away from Jesus by the busyness of of service and, and serving Jesus and doing all these good things. However, as we see, she ends up being irritated because of her sister Mary. Because her sister Mary was not helping her and doing all these good things. Simply, Martha was very close to Jesus in proximity, but not in relationship with Jesus. Martha was a busybody. Martha thought that if she did all of these good things for Jesus, she might have earned applause or accommodation from Jesus for doing so. But all Jesus wanted for Martha was not a grand meal or a million acts of service to earn his affection. Jesus wanted her to sit at his feet and to know him. To my busybody friend, this is exactly what Jesus wants from you this morning as well. He wants you to have the better portion. He wants you to sit at his feet and to know and to love him and to adore him. As we know as well later on in at least in the book of Mark, and I believe also in the book of John, we find that Mary, the one who does take the better portion, what does she end up doing? She ends up worshiping Jesus by preparing him for his burial. It's the truest act of worship that's recorded in the Gospels according to Jesus. Friend, that's what Jesus invites you as a busybody to this morning, to real affection that changes you to have genuine worship this morning. I want to commend you you doing all of what Jesus commands, it's good. But friend, it will not save you. We've already established that just merely doing will not save you. Your relationship with Jesus is not some mere checklist that needs to be ticked off day by day so that you can be saved and spend an eternity in heaven. No, for the busybody, your relationship with Jesus is called to be deep and one that produces real spiritual fruit for Jesus. I'm not going to discount serving Jesus in practical ways. It is so, so good, but it cannot come from an empty well. Jesus is concerned that you do those things as you bear the fruit of love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in light of this real and lasting spiritual fruit, it comes only when you abide and seek Jesus day by day and you love him. Friend, don't miss this. Jesus wants you to grow inwardly and outwardly. Do not build your life on the sand of earning your salvation by mere external works. Build your life on Jesus, who has already earned it for you, and wants you to know him and love him in light of that. What about the growing Christian? Halfway there, the growing Christian. What does this parable mean for you? Well, I want you to keep going and and don't stop. As Brother Royce prayed this morning from 3 John, it gives the elders here, it gives the pastors here no greater joy of knowing that the children of God are walking with God. So keep going and don't stop. But I do want us to consider just a couple of things. First, I hope that you've noticed your growth has likely taken place because of this thing that Jesus instituted, and he talks about this in the book of Matthew as well. Your growth has likely happened because of this little thing called the local church. This is why we at South Canyon see in Scripture an understanding of not just the local church, but of meaningful membership within a local church. One of the reasons here at South Canyon we desire for people to become members of a local church is not so that we can boast about how many people are here and and say, hey, look at this, SBC, we have so many members here in Rapid City. We're not trying to do that at all. We want you to become a member of a church because we care about your spiritual growth. We have things like the church covenant, morning services like this, the evening prayer services later on tonight, life classes, life groups, fellowship breakfasts, triads, and even family forums where we get to discuss the budget and vote on it later on in December. We have all of these things, believe it or not, because we care about your spiritual growth. When you take part in church membership in this way, our hope is that your affection for Jesus will grow and you can know that obeying Jesus is building your life upon the rock. If you're a member here at South Canyon Baptist Church and you come to vote in December for the budget, you can know that, believe it or not, you're building your life upon the rock. You're caring about something that he instituted. If you were to read over our church covenant to one another as a church body, and I would suggest if you haven't read that in a long time, you should do that. One of the reasons that we have this church covenant is to help you do the very thing that Jesus is asking here for you to obey him, to follow him day by day, week by week. You'll see it's an aid in helping you do what Jesus commands of every church member. Praise God for that. Praise God that he's given us this local church in Rapid City, South Dakota, so that we can build our lives upon the rock. But the second thing I want you to consider growing Christian is that other Christians actually need you. One of the greatest ways that you can hear and obey Jesus is by helping make more disciples and you teach them to obey everything that Jesus commands. That's Matthew 28 right there. You follow Jesus' command by helping other Christians obey and follow Jesus. Get together with that brother or sister and read the Bible together. It's helping you build your life upon the rock. Invite that younger couple to dinner and ask them how their marriage is going. It's you building your life upon the rock. Young student or kid, teenager, high school student. Ask your parents. Ask your grandparents. Come and ask somebody that you respect in this church to help you grow in Christ. That is going to be you building your life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. 
I, I pray that we would have a culture here at South Canyon Baptist Church that is growing Christians help growing Christians. I pray that we would orient our weeks and our days and our hours around helping others become more like Jesus and building their lives upon the rock. May that be so of us. Lastly, to the non-Christian. Friend, you may be here today and you would be very confident in saying, hey, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're here, perhaps after not being at church for a really long time, and after evaluating things, you find, in light of Jesus' words, that maybe perhaps you're not a Christian at all. In any case, to the non-Christian, I am so, so, so glad that you're here this morning. This sermon in this passage that we're going through this morning, they weren't, at least by me, intended to make you feel like a non-Christian. They weren't intended to do that. But I do hope and pray that maybe Jesus is speaking to you. I wonder if today, non-Christian, if today would be the day that you commit your life to Jesus, not just by hearing him this morning, but by following him, by responding in obedience this morning and saying, I want to believe in Jesus and I want to follow him all my days. Perhaps this is what Jesus is telling you this morning. Friend, Jesus wants nothing more for you than for you to be saved from the storm of judgment. Jesus does not desire for people to be swept away in the storm of judgment and to have their house built on that sand. All you need to do is to believe in Jesus and obey him. It's simple as that. To do any other thing as we've learned in this sermon, it would be foolish. Yes, this passage in many ways, it's, it seems like a very judgmental text. But friend, I hope and pray you see this morning that this is a text of mercy. Jesus so badly wants to save you from this storm that he's telling you, this is the reality if you obey me or if you do not. He's already done everything needed on your behalf for obedience to be saved. Friend, this morning you can live a life that is one of forgiveness and one of being free from the condemnation of sin. You can live a life that says, I trust it in the rock and the storms of life may come and the storm of judgment may come, but they're not going to blow me over because I've trusted in Jesus Christ. That can be you this morning. Will you obey? Will you listen to Jesus and do his words? Let's pray. God, we are so, so thankful that you give us very much a clear instruction on what we are to do if we want to be saved from the storm of judgment. So God, I pray in light of that, that we would have people trust in Jesus Christ. God, that after the service or sometime this week, they would grab their Christian friend or they would grab one of the pastors or elders and say, I want to obey Jesus. God, I pray for those that are Christian that we would be striving to afford their obedience. Help this church, help us as members of South Canaan be known for being founded upon the rock. God, do this for the glory of your name, not for us, but do it for your glory alone. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.